Welcome to the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, an archive of Robert Lewis's sermons while at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We hope you are encouraged and deepen in your love of Christ while enjoying this podcast. Here is this week's message. Before we look into 2 Corinthians, I thought I would let you bask with me a little bit in the afterglow of being in Poland. As most of you know, Bill Wellens and I went to Eastern Europe and have spent some time there. Some of you can hear more about that as our missions conference. And I hope, by the way, that if you have not taken advantage of that opportunity to be a part of the missions conference this next Saturday, and your children of all grades, two ages two through sixth grade, uh, that is a wonderful opportunity of exposure, and you might do that. And I must confess that up until a few years ago, I certainly would not be considered much of a missions person. But just through a series of circumstances and encouragement by different people, uh, in the last four years, I found myself in places like China and, and Korea and Singapore and Colombia, South America, building school buildings with Indians, and now in Poland, uh, basking with those people in the freshness of a political and uh, spiritual revolution. While I was there, I met some and made some great friends. I met some dreamers like Zygmunt, who's been a pastor there in Poland for 17 years, and there came a place in his life where he saw the great need of his people um, as being and needing a theological institution to train them, and that was his dream. And then guys like Ralph Alexander, a friend of mine for many, many years, who gave up his tenured position in, in the States as a Semitics professor and left and joined Eastern European Seminary and has quietly been risking his life for the last four or five years sneaking into places like Romania when it wasn't safe to be there and Yugoslavia and Russia and all those countries and finding and looking for men who wanted to teach the Word of God. And he and Zygmunt locked up, two dreamers, and they began to dream about this theological uh, institution because the Poles have no evangelical theological institution. Zero. And yet missionaries have been slipping through those Eastern Bloc borders for years and have saved thousands. And yet now for that spiritual revolution to continue, there must be good, solid churches led by good, solid, well-trained pastors. And so Bill and I flew into Warsaw and met with these men and spent time with them and other Polish leaders, and there's a unique opportunity for us to dream with them, and that is to create the first Polish theological seminary that's evangelical. And by that, over the next 10 years or so, to produce literally hundreds of trained pastors who could change the landscape of that country as it seeks to rebuild itself after the aftermath of communism. You know, Zygmunt is a pretty forceful and visionary individual, and I never will forget, because he speaks English, when he leaned over and he said to me, he said, the communist treated us like animals. And now we have the opportunity to be a new society, and my dream is as that new society grows, it will be peppered and infiltrated by a new way of life as well. And that's Christianity. Well, they need us. I mean, there are certain things, as Kevin shared, that third world countries can't do. And there are certain financial needs, of course, that they have. But, you know, the, the, the people that I met, especially Zygmunt and, and a pastor that he is housing or wanting to house his seminary in, a guy named Adam and Zordek, those men are not just wanting money from us. They're wanting us. They're wanting to express to their people that Christianity is practical, it's tangible, it's not just in word, it's in deed. And so they're asking us to come, all of us to come, and to join them and to create a center of Christian vitality in Wrocław, this, this city where they live. And so we need businessmen to go who are Christians to teach small business management. We need computer people and specialists to teach them to use computers, to teach English, uh, to do computer programming and things of that nature. We need a librarian for the school. We need doctors to teach basic hygiene. All coming out of that center of Christian vitality, they're asking us. And you know, in times past, I used to hear things like this. And I used to think we really couldn't make a difference. But now, having traveled a large part of the world in the last few years, 
you know, there's a greater calling on my life. And I see that the answers to our world, as you travel through those countries, it's not economic. It's not political. It's not education. It's a changed heart. People must be changed from within. Or no matter what you do, you cannot create the moral impulse to build a civilization. And they're asking us to help them. And suddenly I see that my life can make a difference. That I can spend time somewhere other than just in front of the tube or for my own recreation. But I can stand on foreign soil. And you know what? You can too. You can stand on foreign soil and help a country that is trying to start all over again do so with the love of Christ. You know, as we looked through that country, it hit me as I did a little research even before I came that the land of Poland was invaded by Christianity in 900 A.D. And it led them in many ways into a spiritual and educational renaissance, this, these Christian believers and this Christian thinking. And you look around the country and you see it's peppered with all these great Gothic and Baroque-styled, architecturally speaking, cathedrals, these magnificent cathedrals. I thought about, talk about a building project. I mean, it was incredible what it must have taken. Some of these buildings took 300 years to finish. And yet they're not full, and the people are in despair. And I couldn't help but ask myself as I traveled through the country, Poland has not continued to be civilized. It's gone the opposite direction. Why? You look at the, the pollution in the country. Even on a clear day, the skies are black with soot and filth as these factories that were built by communist bureaucrats belch out smoke and all that that just has totally polluted the land. Everything in Poland is coated with a black grime, including people's lungs. Constantly they're trying to clean their buildings. Constantly they're turning black again. They told me when it snows in Warsaw, the snow is only white for an hour. Then it turns brown with the pollution. And the people and the poverty and the despair that you see, though now under this new freedom there is foodstuffs in the stores that you can see, you can't buy it because they're too expensive. The only real lines that we saw in Poland of people lining up for something was the lines in the liquor stores, and they were incredibly long as people stood there to numb the pain of what they have felt for 50 years. That's what we saw there. And I thought to myself, how could something like this happen? I mean, Christianity came to this land over a thousand years ago. But you know, there were wars, and Poland was ravaged by wars, and after World War II, and the devastation that took place there, at least some Poles, those Poles in power, exchanged the truth of God for a sumptuous lie. Made a lot of sense to them on the front end. Karl Marx had all kinds of ideas and theories that were being embraced, many of them by our own universities. And so they began to construct this new society based on a philosophy of self-serving rather than self-denying, what the Scriptures would teach, on humanism and self-exalting rather than humility and the worship of truth and the living God. And now look at their country. This great theory that held so much promise. Look at all of Eastern Europe. I can say I've seen it with my own eyes now. It's pathetic. It's oppressive. The only joy in the Eastern Bloc is that they're now free, but they're still desperate. How did that happen? And you know, the minute you ask that question, like I said, you realize it's because they exchanged the truth for a lie. Now I say that because when I look at our own country and all the changes that have taken place in our world, socially and educationally, and as well as believing truth against a lie, we stand at the start of the path. Whereas the poles lie flat at the end of the path. We've done exactly the same thing. We've exchanged self-humility 
for self-glorification. We've exchanged giving for indulgence. We've exchanged living for others and walking with God to living for self and the hell with everyone else. And we think it's going to create a grand society, just as Karl Marx promised those people a grand society through his theories, and yet they know now by experience what we need to see with our own eyes. That man can never live that way. Man can never walk away from God and expect in time to be successful. You know, the same problem was with the Corinthians, and that's what I want to address here this morning. You know, the Corinthians had had the Apostle Paul preach the truth to them, and now, as we have talked about in a number of weeks, these false teachers had come in and had begun to rob them of the truth, to promise them something else, something that would be more tantalizing to this need for self-fulfillment rather than to give their lives away, as Paul said, the true gospel asked for. So I want us to look at his words, just three verses here this morning, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, and see his concern, and see how that concern can also help us. And as you get to 2 Corinthians 11, I want you to know that this concern has resulted in two emotions for the Apostle that we don't normally associate with a spiritual Christian. Look at verse 2. First couple of words. Jealousy. I am jealous. Look at verse 3. I am afraid. <laughs> now those are two things you don't normally think about for the Christian. I mean, we know we experience those from time to time, but to hear the Apostle speak of those as well as okay is a little bit astounding. Fear and jealousy. And yet he has them both for these believers. So what I want to do is first of all, read the passage in its context and then start off by looking at this jealousy that Paul says that he has. Read with me starting in verse 1. Paul writes, I wish that you would bear with me in a little foolishness, but indeed you are bearing with me in this letter. For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband, that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. But I am afraid, lest as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds should be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. You know, in another way, this small section of Scripture sums up much about the whole Christian life. But we'll talk about that in a moment. Let's look, first of all, at Paul's godly jealousy. And as I said, jealousy is not something you often think of as something positive at all. Jealousy is something that destroys in our mind. It's something that causes you to want to take control of a rival and have what he has. Jealousy is that emotion that causes a person to, in time, lose their joy in life and just kind of burn with a seething kind of bitterness and bubble over from time to time and erupt in the violence of anger because of what they see and want in another. That's the way we normally think of jealousy. Of course, the Bible does speak about that. In James chapter 3, James writes these words. He says, if you have bitter jealousy in your heart, there will be disorder in your life in every evil thing. Jealousy creates chaos, in other words. But James calls it bitter jealousy. Paul calls his, if you'll notice in verse 2, a godly jealousy, and I think there is quite a difference. And the difference is primarily with the end that's in view here. You see, when you have a bitter jealousy, you lust for that which is another's. And you can in time become so cruel and so possessive in that emotion that you will lash out and gossip and slander and hurt in any way you can to bring down your rival or to get what he or she has. But godly jealousy is obviously not that. It is not a lust that seeks to hurt and have. But obviously it is a love that longs for that which is best for another. I think that's what Paul had. God has that for us. Do you know in the Ten Commandments there's only one emotion listed as God gives those Ten Commandments to Moses. And you know what the emotion is? It's jealousy. 
Second commandment says, You shall have no other gods besides me, for I, the Lord God, am a jealous God. Green with jealousy? No. He is envious for our best. That's what he means. We see that expressed in the life of Jesus when he breaks in with an emotion that's kind of uh, distinct for Jesus with a cord whipping money changers out of the temple. A temple that was erected for the self-humiliation of believers before the living God and yet was being used as a self-serving institution where people could become rich. And God and Jesus drove them out because he was jealous for the best of his people. God's jealousy is seen in our own lives from time to time. I don't know about you, but when I start straying and start kind of getting involved in other things, God will use circumstances to discipline me, not to hurt me, not to punish me. But as it says in Hebrews 12, he disciplines us for our best that we might share and be able to share His holiness. God is jealous for us. Paul is jealous here in 2 Corinthians for these believers for the same reason. They're, they're tempted. They're being seduced to invite these false teachers into their lives and begin to believe those lies rather than the true gospel. He says, I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy. And he uses the illustration of the comparison with that of a husband for, or that of a father with his daughter. Notice he says, For I betrothed you to one husband, that is to Christ. Now the word betrothed is the equivalent of our English word engagement. But in Near Eastern times in the ancient, in ancient times, an engagement, when a father gave his daughter to a man, an engagement, before the consummation of the marriage, they were legally married. And though the consummation and the celebration might not take place for weeks or even months later, they were married. And what he's giving the picture is, is that when he came into the midst of the Corinthians, and he introduced them to Christ and brought them to Christ, that they were now betrothed to him, legally married to him. Though the celebration and the consummation, which for all Christians is the second coming of Christ, might take place weeks, months, or even, as has been the case, thousands of years later. But in this interval between the engagement and the consummation, as a spiritual father for these children, he's wanting them to remain pure, unattached. This is no time to date around or to invite any lovers into your bedroom. That's what he's saying. You know, I'm sure every dad, at least I would hope so, would love to give away his daughter as a pure virgin. To be able to walk her down the aisle, knowing because he has jealously guarded and instructed and especially loved her as a young woman, that she has kept herself pure and he's able to present her in honor. By the way, virginity is not chic today, but it is Christian. And to be able to stand there in honor with this young woman and to give her away in honor and look that young man in the eye and say, and I'm expecting you to grant her the same honor for which she really is. That's every dad, I think, dream. And Paul has that same dream or spiritual desire to present these Corinthians that someday when Christ comes again to Jesus Christ in honor, a pure virgin, unattached to any other false teaching or lies or theories that would promise so much on the front of the path. But if you got to the end of the path and you could see where it leads, it leads to destruction. And that's what he's saying here. You know, from time to time, I have the privilege of hearing from someone or being reported back to from someone that I had the opportunity to betroth to Jesus Christ. And it just is, I think it's providential that I got this letter this week from a young lady about 20 years ago that I was involved in while I was still a college student and didn't know what I was doing, but I was just trying to help her 
at least find some truth in her life. And she wrote me this letter. We've not seen each other since that time, but she said, Dear Robert and Sherrod, you probably don't remember me, but I just had to write this letter anyway. I attended University Baptist Church in Fayetteville, and at that time I was around 14 years old and a member of the youth group. My maiden name was Teresa Currington, and I hung around with Lila Baker and Kim Minner. Boy, they were wild kids. She says, I know this is probably stretching your recall, but I will never forget it. You two made such an impact on my life at a very formative time for me. In fact, I credit you with leading me to the Lord and beginning my discipling process. The reason I am writing this letter to you is to let you know how much I appreciate you having the courage to ask me one day, have you asked Jesus Christ into your life? Had you not done that, I'm not sure where I would be today. I soon moved away from Fayetteville, but what was planted in my heart has continued to grow. Again, thank you for sharing Christ with a young girl 20 years ago. And then this is the part I like. She closes. It's stuck. Well, that's really what Paul's saying here. He's saying, let it stick. So good to continue on, to grow and to nurture be nurtured into this life that you've been introduced to. And yet at the same time, Paul calling these Corinthians pure virgins is also has an encouragement from the other side. Now, let's don't be deceived about these Corinthians. They weren't real good in the beginning. And if you go back to the first letter, 1 Corinthians, Paul says this about who made up the Corinthian church. He said, those of you in the Corinthian church are those who have been sexually active idolaters from cult backgrounds, homosexuals, thieves, drunks, covetous people, and many of you are swindlers. Sounds like our church. <laughs> Man, I mean, these letters are relevant. I know you, and I know me. And gosh, a lot of those labels sound real, authentic. And yet, you know what's also interesting? At the same time, these people had met Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ did something that no one else could do for these people. He returned to them their virginity. doesn't matter if you're a drunk here today. doesn't matter if you're a homosexual here today. doesn't matter what your background is. There is one that can start the process fresh. He has that kind of power. doesn't matter if you've been sexually promiscuous all your life, and now you're bearing the guilt and maybe some of the scars of what that's meant. Jesus Christ can return back to you purity. And then if you betroth yourself to Him and pledge your life to Him and live by that commitment, He will make that freshness blossom into fruitfulness. That's the Christian life. Pretty exciting, isn't it? I'm not saying there's not bumps in all that. Certainly there are. No one's perfect. But the point is not perfection. The point is your allegiance. That's the point. Well, that's what Paul is saying here for these people. He's saying, I know you can have that kind of life. And I am so jealous that you get it. Then he says, I've got a second emotion for you, and it's found in verse 3. He says, I'm afraid. Now, in your outlines, I call it a phobia. <laughs> the reason I call it a phobia is because it comes from the Greek word. This word fear or afraid comes from the Greek word phobeo. It's from the word we get our English word phobia. And it's a unique word. It expresses real fear. Paul is scared for these people. Now we're talking about Christians not becoming a Christian. And it's a fear I have for many of you. It's a fear parents have for their children once they've been introduced to Christ. Because just because you started the process doesn't mean that you're going to finish the process. Because there's all kinds of demons out there who can rob you of that life that Christ so desperately wants to give you. And Paul says, hey, 
Corinthians. I'm really scared. Notice what he goes on to say. I'm scared this way. Lest as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, that your mind should be led astray from that which is simple and pure about living for Christ Jesus. You know, I would like to just jump over letter A in your outline to letter B, and I want to talk about Satan first of all. Because if you notice, he mentions, though he's been addressing these false teachers, this is the one moment in the letter where he lists by name the enemy behind these false teachers. He calls him the serpent. Paul knew, as any great godly man would, that these false teachers were not anything but instruments through which God's arch enemy, Satan, operates. Now he has a million megaphones today in our world to spew out his propaganda, and he uses them very shrewdly and wisely. But Paul here is saying, I have a fear that this enemy, unseen, hidden, is working through these instruments to lead what? Your minds astray. Now generally, that's the target always of Satan. If you read through the scriptures, he targets the mind. And the reason he does is because if he can capture the mind, he can capture your life. Ideas that capture your mind, passions that fire your imagination, they control your life right now. It's what inspires that rules. And Satan knows that and he concentrates there and he is constantly giving false information that would inspire you to go your own independent way, though it's really his way. You just don't know it. And the way he does it is with half-truths. The scripture says Satan is the father of lies. But if you draw a little closer to the scripture, not outright lies, just half-truth kind of lies, because that's the most vicious lie of all. As Tennyson put it, a lie that is all a lie can be met with and fought outright. But a lie that is partly the truth, it's a harder matter to fight. And certainly that's the case. Since the scripture here in verse 3 mentions Eve, I thought we would just journey back to the beginning and look at how Satan took advantage of this young woman. Because how he does it and the instruments that he uses to do it are the same ones that are going on in our day. And I want us to get a little fresh taste of this old story. So turn back to Genesis chapter 3. Now you know the story, man and woman in the garden, and then they're confronted by this temptation. God has said not to eat of this one tree, but everything else they can freely have. And then that brings us to chapter 3, verse 1. And we're introduced to the serpent again. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? Now certainly that was a lie. God had not said that. But in saying that, what he does to Eve's mind is she begins for the first time, maybe she hadn't even thought of this, she begins to question, why are there any prohibitions at all? It's like a young person growing up who's got a, a body bursting with hormones and you're saying you can't. And apart from revelation, let's just be honest, apart from the revelation of God's Word, they might say, why should there be any prohibitions? It's a good question. God hadn't given. Why? He's only given the results if you do. But He's not explained why. It's just sitting there. And you know why it's sitting there? Because it's a test of Adam and Eve's allegiance. That's why. And so, as he makes this statement and she gives her answer, Satan provides his own answer to his own question. Look at verse 5. He says, God knows that in the day you eat from this, your eyes will be open and you will be like God. Knowing good and evil. Well, that really begins to cause her mind to swirl in dizziness. Because now she's saying... In, in essence, or she's beginning to think, God's kind of holding back on me. He's not wanting my best. That's kind of the insinuation that's beginning to swirl here. And then, because of that, she does something that's the fatal mistake. 
She cuts herself off from revelation, the Word of God, and she just begins to reason her way through this circumstance. It's the same way you and I reason ourselves. Look at verse 6. She will come to three conclusions. The first conclusion she'll see is, or she'll come to, is that she sees that the tree was good for food. Now, translated, that means if it seems reasonable, it must be right. The church right now is facing some of the same stresses and strains in a, in a very um, liberated society of sorts. We're asking the question, since women are just as smart as men, since women can do all the things that men can do, why can't women preach? Good question. What's there to say women can't preach? Just the Word of God. Doesn't seem reasonable. There's no explanation. Not in detail. It's not laid out there. Talk about the home. God's Word says there's certain functions for the man and woman in a home to have a good, solid family. But now in the midst of our liberated world, we've got all kinds of counters to that, all kinds of alternatives to that, and people are looking at us and saying, why are you doing that? Why do you live like that? Why don't you do this? Why don't you change these? There's no real explanation other than just God told us. Do you see where Eve is? Do you see where we are? Just on the front end, there's just a statement. There's some prohibitions. It's saying, don't do this and do this. But there's not a lot of explanation. But it's asking for allegiance. And we're saying, that doesn't seem reasonable. I want to know why. And if God doesn't answer why, then... I'll move to the second thing. It becomes a delight to my eyes. In other words, I look at these alternatives and translated in modern day terms, it means if it feels right, it is right. See, it became a delight. It stirred her emotions. We have that bombarded out at us every day through the media. You know why you buy a new Toyota? Not because you have the money. Not because your life is filled up with all kinds of debt. Not because you're not even sure whether you need it, but like the jingle says, it just feels right. <laughs> That's why you buy it. So it must be right, right? And that's how we live our lives. Those are theories. And everything seems reasonable. And you know why it seems reasonable and why it feels right? Because we're only on the front end of the path. And God's saying, that's not where I want you to go. I want your allegiance. And you're saying, but that's not reasonable. And it doesn't feel right. If I've got a desire, it must be that that desire needs to be fulfilled. We live in a world where every desire is legitimate. Not according to the Scripture. So we stand on the path. And we say, I'm going to go this direction. But if we knew what was at the other end, and all you have to do is read history to find out what's on the other end of every one of the theories that we're heading to towards our world today, you won't like what you get when you get what you want when you've left God out. But there's just that statement, don't eat it. And then look at the last thing she says. She sees that the tree was desirable to make one wise. Translated into the 20th century, what Satan is promising her is the maximization of your potential. You know what God's doing? He's holding back on you so you can't be all that you were meant to be. Have you heard that jingle before? Hey, go join the Navy and be all you were meant to be. Then you'll find out. And then when you're swabbing decks and peeling potatoes, you'll find out it was a lie. But you see a young man who's 17 and wants to get away from mom and home and he's seeing flying those jet fighters and all that, that looks wonderful on the front end. And now we've got people who are bailing out of their commitments to their marriage and all that because they want to find me. See, you're keeping me back from being me. And everything that's bombarded at us is to let everything go and concentrate on only one goal. And that's the maximization of me. Now we've got the new age who says, and you can be God too. That's the world we live in. 
And now the woman's working through all that, and the reason she lets herself think this way is because of Satan's statement in verse 4. See, he takes away the, the penalty. He says, you'll surely not die. You know God. And she did know God. And she knew that God was good and God was gracious to her. God had given her things, a whole world to explore. And so she reasons in her mind this way, just like you and I do. She says, because God is good and gracious and loving, He, he couldn't, he, he wouldn't kill me, would He? No, not God. Jesus was tempted the same way. If you remember his wilderness temptation, Jesus was taken up on the temple and Satan said to him, if you are the Son of God, there's the half-truth, if you are the Son of God, then throw yourself off this temple. Because it's written in the Scripture that God will give His angels charge concerning you. In other words, they'll provide a safety net. And the church however this has happened, has been so taught the love of God to the exclusion of the consequences of sin that many of us live our lives exactly the same way, standing on the pinnacle of the temple. And Satan says, go ahead, do it. God's good. He'll forgive. He will give His angels charge concerning you. There's a safety net down there. Go ahead and live your life for yourself. Go ahead and do what you want to do. Believe that having sex here, it's wrong, but it's okay because God's good. Charge up what you want. Cheat when needed. Glorify yourself through total concentration in your work to the exclusion of all else. Throw yourself down. And He'll catch you. And you know how Jesus answered that? He said, you shall not tempt the Lord your God, because there's consequences to sin. I believe this half-truth about the love of God is one of the great weapons that Satan is using against the church today. God does love us. Boy, He loves us. And He is very patient and merciful and kind. But to throw ourselves down is to presume upon the love and richness of God's grace and there will be consequences. Much of today's Christian impotence, I think, is rooted in this twisted understanding that actually, well, quite frankly, it actually encourages sin. We're sitting there thinking that God's going to cover for us so we can reason, separated now from revelation, that if it feels right, it is right. If it's reasonable, do it. Maximize me. Actualize me. Make me great. So we live our lives that way. With all the time in the back of the mind, the words, you'll not die. You won't die. But look around us. Is there not the smell of death everywhere in this waning, straining American society of ours? Look at the schools. Look at your homes. Look at politics. Look at business ethics. Medical ethics. Look at all of it. Does it smack of the purity and simplicity of devotion to truth and morality? You know, one of the things that happened when I was on my trip, just kind of happened again, was I was there in Vienna and I was talking and Ralph told me that one of the things he fears when he thinks about going back to America is the violence. This is in Europe. He said, you know, I can put my daughter, my 10-year-old daughter on a train at 12 o'clock at night and send her across Vienna. Not worried. Nobody's worried here. I got to go and eat at the UN with a guy who's in charge of looking at all the uh, nuclear waste around the country. And as we ate in the UN, he told me, he said, you know one thing about being in Japan? He said, when I take my gear into Japan, I just leave all my luggage right in the lobby. Don't even check it with the bellman. Just leave it right in the lobby. And I go out for two or three days and work at a site outside Tokyo, and I know when I come back, that luggage will still be there. You can't go out in your neighborhood at night. And we think, we're civilized! And we're going to go help them? No, you're seeing the waning of a civilization. 
That's what you're experiencing. And you need to open your eyes. You need to see it's not going to get any better until you make greater commitments. And those commitments have to be in line with the will and the word and the person of God. We need white knights today. We need people who are knights of a round table who will live for virtue and for the cause of Jesus Christ to the exclusion of all else. Or there won't be anything else. You think, well, where's the church in all this? Because, quite frankly, if you go to America and look around America different than those other countries, though in Europe the church is virtually extinguished, Western Europe, you look around us and there's a church on almost every corner. You think there should be power there. What happened? Well, what happened is exactly what was going to happen if the Corinthians didn't wake up in 2 Corinthians 11.3. They can be led astray from the purity and simplicity of devotion to Christ for something else. Other things. Now, you say, well, what are the other things? Well, it doesn't tell us in the passage because... But I think this, just as being a pastor and interacting with people, without thinking our Christianity becomes something other than Jesus. It becomes this, going to church. You're a Christian? I go to church. Or I'm a member of a denomination. I have my name on a roll. I grew up in the church. My parents are Christian. I give money. I've lived by the golden rule. I've been baptized as an infant. I walked the aisle when I was 12. I went to a camp meeting and had an incredible religious experience with God. I'm Christian. Those are other things. That's, that's, that's beginning to, 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 to cloud the issue here. That's not Christianity. Christianity is one thing and one thing only without all the trappings of even church. It's just absolute, uncompromising devotion to Jesus Christ, the greatest man who ever lived. That's all it is. And if it's anything other than that for you, it's not Christianity. So when I ask somebody, are you a Christian? And they say, I'm a Baptist. Or they say, I'm a Catholic. Or they say, I go to Fellowship Bible Church. They're just giving me a label. Like a product. It means nothing. And yet they don't know it because they've been deceived. <laughs> I read an interesting, while we were flying over to Europe, I picked up the Wall Street Journal and I read an interesting article that reminded me of these labels that we wear. It seems that there was this gentleman named Bart Amon. He has a poultry producing company and he's been using the label range chickens to sell his chickens. They sell for twice the price as an ordinary chicken. And he makes all kinds of claims about these range chickens, so to speak, that they taste better and business has been booming. But the Department of Agriculture has stepped in and said, what is range? What does it mean? What is a range chicken? Here's what Amon says. He says, a range chicken is one that, quote, spends their days complacently on my six chicken ranches. They can go outside at their own discretion, though yard privileges are withheld in foul weather. Most important, they retain personal liberties. Those who choose to lie around aren't required to roam. Those who choose to just lie around, it's just up to them. We do not force them to go out, Eamon says. It's the chicken's choice. <laughs> and then he adds, such liberty lets the chickens lead stress-free lives. <laughs> but a spokesman for the Department of Agriculture objects. He says, we can't be wasting the government's time with these labels that we can't enforce. I guess a chicken could be stress-free, but how could you tell? <laughs> could you tell a chicken that was stress-free? Chicken by any other name to me is just a chicken. Well, I say that because church labels can be just as deceiving.
to you. Your attendance here can be a cover-up of the deception that you've been led into by whatever manner that makes you do everything but give absolute allegiance to Jesus Christ. He demands that of you. His words were not to His disciples, believe me, believe in me. His words were, follow me. And I'll take nothing less. That's what He's asking of you. Now, let me close with the application. Are you devoted to Jesus Christ? Do you know Him as the living God? You've experienced Him. You've tasted of His power. You've seen His work in your life. You see His handprints over the choices you've made about your marriage, about child-rearing, about personal choices, moral choices, business ethics, how you treat your employees, how you treat your employer, how you think about your life, how you look at the world. Do you know Jesus Christ? Pure and simple. If your mind is confused, if you're sitting there in complexity saying, well, I think I do, or I grew up in a church, or, you know, I'm here. <laughs> See, your mind, I fear, has been led astray from the clear teaching of Christianity for 2,000 years. And that is, it's Jesus Christ, period. And unless you embrace Him, you have nothing at all. You know, it was that simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ that allowed the early Christians to soar above the persecutions of the greatest empire up until that time, the Roman Empire, and to challenge it, to stand against it, and ultimately to conquer it. It's the lack of that simplicity and purity that grounds so-called modern Christians in compromise as we watch our American empire, so to speak, though I don't really care much about it, crumble, disintegrate culturally, economically, morally, but at the core of it, it's spiritually. Do you want to serve Jesus Christ? Do you need Him? Maybe some of you are here for the first time and I'm talking way above your head, but you've got needs. You feel like you're still back where the Corinthians were when I mentioned a minute ago. You know, having all kinds of burdens that you've brought in here. And you say, I'm, I'm tired. I'm worn out. I need a new life. There is new life. And for those of us who walk with Him, it's very powerful. And we are jealous that you have it too. Let's pray together. And with your heads bowed in this closing moment, I want to give two different groups two different opportunities. And that is if you're here today and you, you don't really know where you stand spiritually, gosh, I would love to talk with you. Nobody's going to cram anything down your throat. Nobody's going to force you into any kind of decision that you don't want, but I really would like you to investigate the truth. You owe it to yourself to look at the greatest man who ever lived. That everyone, by secular accounts as well as sacred, says he was the greatest man who ever lived. I say he was God too. But I want you to think in this moment, do I have the courage to step forward and say, I want to know more about this. If you do, I want to interact with you. And then for those of us who are a part of this body, 
You need to go out and look at the world and you won't feel nearly as secure as you do right now. And yet the answer is not in more laws, more prisons, more government regulations, even a dictator to quell the drug crisis. Now we can do all those things and some we should do. But in the end, you can't put into the heart of man a moral impulse. You can't give him morality. He has to believe his way into that. And you've got to ask yourself, with what time I have remaining, you who make up this body, how can I serve Jesus Christ radically? And Lord, as we finish here with this prayer, we'll be dismissed with it. I pray that others like me are sensing that You're right here with us. And You want to do business with us. Not to use us and expend us for no account. But You want us to enjoy our existence. And to know that we have a home when it's over. And to know that we can be cleansed from our sin and that we can rebuild that which is torn down. You want us to know that so badly. And You want to use us in a way that at the end of our life, as we stand before You, we will leap for joy for having lived a purpose-filled life. Do that for us. And now go with us and help us to touch others because we're taking our eyes off ourselves. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Dr. Robert Lewis Sermon Podcast. If you were encouraged by this message, please rate and review this podcast. In addition, share this with your friends and community. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. You can learn more about the team at soundofarose.com.